Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Scott Richards. This guy right here. Ready to answer your Bible <laughs> questions for the next hour. If you are interested in participating in that venture, that's not you. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Feel free to leave your questions to us or send your questions to us. Leave them for us at the following websites. You can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That will be spelled out on top of the screen at a platform I will explain in a moment. If you're joining us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, note that that is going to be questions, plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. There you can send us your questions both during and after the broadcast, and if we don't have time to get to your question, it keeps it nice and organized for us. That's very much appreciated. If you'd like to join us on social media, engage with us face-to-face, where this contact information will be available for you to copy and store at your leisure. YouTube is first and foremost where we are live streaming at A Reason for Hope. If you subscribe to us there and give us the notification bell, we will be able to give you in exchange the times in which we are broadcasting. Here in Arizona, it's going to be from 4 to 5 p.m., not Mountain Standard Time, but Arizona time, since we don't do daylight savings. If you need to know where you are in the world and where that fits in particularly, subscribing will circumvent that issue. Facebook will also provide you with the same benefit. Give us a like at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and there you'll not only be able to do the same thing on YouTube, to listen to our messages on archive, but also to, as we also have the benefit of engaging with on YouTube, on the right side of the screen, seeing your questions in live chat as the broadcast unfolds. There you'll not only be able to send us your questions, but say if it's anonymous, you can also send them to us through our private message platforms, private messaging, comment sections, take your pick on those websites, which again, a reason for hope on YouTube and Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook. Say you're getting tired of the tech tyranny and want to uh, keep yourself at a distance as far as social media is concerned. We all need a detox every now and then. Our website is available for you as well. That will be at Calvary, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, ChristianFellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll get all the benefits of YouTube and Facebook. You'll be able to type in your own name, so if you'd rather to stay anonymous, you can do that. But note that we are receiving your questions under three standards. They are sincere, they're about the Bible, and they are asked in the form of a question. So note that if your question fits that criteria, the... I guess uh, eager attitude that we're trying to bring to the broadcast will be met with the full respect that it deserves. But note as well, we only have an hour to do it. So before we, I guess, uh, don't mince any more details, keep you all updated about the shenanigans taking place across the globe and engaging with your questions as you send them in, we'd like to take a moment to pray, Dad. Would you like to do that? I'd love to do that. Father, thank you that we have this opportunity to once again spend time in your presence, to look at your word. Lord, to have your Holy Spirit work upon us through that uh, amazing, powerful avenue to make us more like Jesus in our hearts. Uh, I pray, Father, as well, that if there are any that come across this podcast and don't know you in a personal way, that you would draw them to yourself supernaturally. You'd speak to their hearts as your word is shared and cause them uh, to realize that all they have to do is turn to you in faith and they can receive a brand new life, uh, total forgiveness of sins, the hope of heaven, and you, Lord, the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, All these benefits and so much more and the hope of heaven beyond 
Uh, thank you, God, uh, for giving us this opportunity to be able to share that. And we pray, Father, that we would make it clear and uh, that we'd speak the truth in love. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. All right. So what's going on, if anything? Oh, my gosh. What isn't going on? Uh, very interesting uh, update uh, that we uh, received earlier uh, through our, man, uh, our friend Amir Safadi, uh, quoting a uh, story that ran in the Washington Post that apparently on two separate occasions, uh, IDF soldiers have cornered uh, Yaha Sinwar, the head of the uh, terrorists in, Hama in uh, uh, the Hamas terrorists in Gaza. Uh, on two different occasions, they had him dead to rights. Uh, but in both occasions, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu did not give the overhead, uh, the, the go-ahead, uh, to take him out. Now, the big question is why? Why would you hesitate to take out such a key individual? Well, apparently, uh, the situation was such that um, Sinwar has surrounded himself with Israeli hostages. And so to take out Sinwar would probably have resulted in a number, an unacceptable number, uh, maybe one is unacceptable as far as the number goes, of uh, casualties among those hostages. And, you know, when I, I heard about that, uh, I couldn't help but think in my heart, if I had been in his shoes, boy, you want to talk about one of the most difficult decisions that any leader ever has to make. On the one side of the coin, taking out a guy like Sinwar would be a definite blow to the morale and the prospects of the dead-enders that are still fighting uh, the IDF troops in the Gaza Strip. Uh, but uh, the other side of it is at what cost, at what price. I can't help but think that uh, if I were in Benjamin Netanyahu's situation, I would have made a very similar call. Uh, because on the one side of the coin, yes, taking out Sinwar would have been a uh, major victory, a major step toward victory. But uh, on the other side, uh, you've got to know that there's someone just as bloodthirsty, just as terroristic, waiting to take Sinwar's place in the case that he does, in fact, go down. Uh, very interesting development indeed. So um, doing all that, putting the math together, I think I would have made that same decision. Now, it's going to be very interesting as Israel ramps up their operation, operations going into uh, that final southern section of the Gaza Strip uh, where uh, Sinwar and uh, the other uh, real bad actors as well as uh, the Israeli hostages are located. It's going to be very interesting to see if similar uh, gut check kind of decisions are going to have to be made. So we really need to be praying for uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, for Yoav Gallant, who's the head of the IDF, uh, for the rest of the Israeli cabinet, the war cabinet, to be able to make the proper decisions under this set of circumstances. Another very interesting uh, development that has happened, uh, a uh, report uh, that is uh, being uh, uh, shared through the Jerusalem Post, is that uh, apparently the mad mullahs in Tehran have given the go-ahead for uh, Hezbollah to enter into a full-fledged war with Israel. Uh, according to a story in the Arabic Post, uh, they are going to be able to increase uh, their attacks. Uh, Iran has reportedly set conditions for Hezbollah, ordering it to launch a full-scale attack on Israel only after it became certain of Israel's intention to carry out an invasion of the southern Gaza city of Rafah. So if Israel goes into Rafah, uh, 
the Iranians who control Hamas, by the way, and Islamic Jihad and the Houthi rebels and, and Hezbollah, and the list goes on, uh, will definitely want to see if they can get Israel trying to fight on two fours, uh, two uh, fronts. Uh, fronts, if you will, at once. Uh, so uh, apparently Hassan Nasrallah, who is the head of Hezbollah, has called an emergency meeting uh, with his Iranian overlords, uh, essentially uh, showing uh, that uh, he is, uh, in a sense, uh, quaking in his boots. Uh, he believes that Israel is going to launch a large-scale assault on Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, remember uh, what Israel has requested from Hezbollah is, first of all, stop shooting at innocent uh, targets uh, across the border. Secondly, uh, withdraw to the previous uh, resolution that the UN passed uh, regarding the last conflict between uh, Israel and Hezbollah, that Hezbollah was to withdraw their so sources north of a place called the Latani River in Damascus. If, uh, if uh, Hezbollah did that and did not uh, launch missiles and so forth at Israel, then there would have been an uneasy but uh, somewhat stable status quo. But uh, again, Hezbollah has never... Uh, uh, followed through on UN Resolution 1701, although there are UNFIL, as they are known, uh, peacekeepers, supposedly in this area. Essentially what these peacekeepers do, it's kind of like having a, a watchdog that just watches as the burglars take things out of your house. That's what uh, the UNFIL does uh, there in southern Lebanon. So uh, apparently uh, Nasrallah is getting very, very nervous about all of this. He is completely certain, according to this uh, uh, article in the Arab New, uh, the Arabic Post, completely certain of Israel's intention to launch a large-scale attack on Lebanon. And he asked uh, the Iranians, uh, including the head of the Iranian Republican Guard Corps, to give him complete freedom in how he intends to attack. Uh, so uh, again, uh, the uh, same sources have indicated that Tehran has disapproved of a reportedly uncoordinated launch of rockets uh, by Hezbollah on uh, the northern Israeli city of Safed, hitting, uh, one hitting the entrance of the Ziv Medical Center. Uh, they consider this bad PR for them. Uh, so uh, again, Hezbollah taking things in their own hands, attacking the city of Safed, including that medical center, uh, essentially uh, was a uh, act of disrespect, if you will, uh, toward their Iranian handlers in that they went ahead and did this without consultation. And uh, they are insisting that Hezbollah adopts a policy of strategic patience in the face of Israeli and American provocations, according to the Arabic Post. So we are seeing things definitely heating up on that uh, particular northern front. Uh, the other uh, uh, aspect of things uh, that uh, is uh, very significant, I would tell you to take a look at uh, the, uh, the Jerusalem Post for some of uh, these uh, uh, further developments. Apparently there's an article from an insider about just how heartbroken uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was over having to make that monumental decision not to go after uh, Sinwar uh, you can go ahead and read all about that at the JerusalemPost.com. Uh, uh, it's available to you online. But once again, uh, be praying for 
the uh, peace of Jerusalem, very difficult times indeed. And as uh, Israel goes into Rafah, things are really going to get stirred up along that line. Uh, the only other thing I would add is that there have been a number of stories basically confirming what we told you all yesterday, that uh, Joe Biden's statement that uh, he hoped for a ceasefire by Monday uh, not only was absolutely refuted by Hamas themselves, saying they weren't interested in any uh, such thing in any way, shape, or form, uh, but also uh, we discovered that that caught uh, Israel and their government completely off guard, saying we had no idea they were even talking about all of this. As far as Israel uh, having to have a ceasefire in place by the beginning of Ramadan, out of respect uh, for that Islamic holiday, uh, I just have uh, three words in response to that, Yom Kippur War. Uh, it doesn't seem like the Muslims have ever respected any of the Jewish uh, high holy days. I don't expect Israel to return the favor. So there you go. With that said, going out to your questions now, and we've received a couple of them from places we don't usually get them, but uh, we want to give priority to those engaging where we do expect them to be. Noth, who's been engaging with us uh, very frequently over the last week or two, uh, had a question about watching church online yesterday, and the preacher was saying, now keep uh, your red flags on hand because we're still going to take this seriously, I decree and declare you will have a blessed life. You are the head, not the tail. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Oh, there you go. America will be a nation under God again. Now, the question is centered around the legitimacy of these kind of prayers. And I think a way we can phrase it is, are these kind of prayers going to be answered? And since not, spoiler alert to our opinion on this. <laughs> um, what's the actual purpose of prayer? Because it seems like this guy is trying to accomplish acts of patriotism rather than what the Bible says prayer is all about. Yeah, you know, just the whole idea of uh, making a pronouncement like that, uh, that you're going to be the head, not the tail. Well, what that is is a reference uh, back to the blessings and the curses that we find uh, were given to Israel uh, back in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, half of the uh, the priests were to stand on uh, Mount Gerizim, the other on Mount Gebal, and uh, one was to pronounce blessings upon Israel, uh, the other was to uh, pronounce what God said would be the curses on Israel. And that idea of you'll be the lender and not the borrower, the head and not the tail, and so on, are part of those blessings that God gave to Israel. And uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about this tonight in our uh, study through Esther, about uh, the terms and conditions that are associated with God's promises. Uh, those promises are not just given uh, willy-nilly or carte blanche. Uh, they're given in response to a covenant relationship that God made with the people of Israel. And that covenant relationship with Israel was conditioned upon the people of Israel obeying the commandments of God and not going after idols and uh, not uh, seeking uh, their own will, but the will of God uh, himself. Uh, so when someone takes and, uh, well, in a sense, uh, gets out the old exacto uh, knife and cuts it out of their Bible and uh, puts it into a New Testament uh, context, first of all, uh, that's not a great way to go about uh, understanding the Scripture. Or anything. Secondly, 
when you hear people make these kind of pronouncements in an unconditional sort of a way, uh, you know, it's, it's almost uh, like the old saying, if someone tells you something and it sounds too good to be true, it's only because it is. Uh, when we take a look at the New Testament, and especially when we take a look at the faithful lives of those who follow Jesus in the New Testament, they didn't follow Jesus because he was going to make them the head and not the tail, the lender and not the borrower, who's going to give them perfect health and maximum wealth uh, and send their enemies to flight. Their prayers uh, weren't even for Rome to be an empire under God. They were simply to make disciples of all nations. Right. So, uh, and that task, that quest to take the good news to the whole world was going to cost them all very, very dearly, uh, virtually Every one of those things that you will hear, I think, well-meaning but misguided people say, you can have this, and I'm pronouncing this on you, and this is this blessing uh, that you can have. Uh, you know, I, I just think uh, the, the sad thing is it sounds great, and it gets people excited, but in a sense, it's almost, uh, you'll pardon the expression, spiritual snake oil salesmanship, because it's just not so. How do we know this? Because in the Gospel of John chapter 16, in verse 33, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but fear not, for I've overcome the world. He didn't say, in this world you're going to have maximum wealth and perfect health. He said, it's going to be tough here. Uh, you know, if you try to live in this world the way Jesus did, if you say the same sort of things that Jesus said to the same sort of people he said them to, you're going to get what he got. Uh, we do live in a fallen world, and I think maybe the healthiest way to look at life in this fallen world is this. This world that we live in right now is as close as a sinner will ever get to heaven because we see the glory of God even in its fallenness. But it's also as close as a saint is ever going to get to hell because we live in a very dark place. We live in enemy-occupied territory. Uh, a uh, favorite uh, Bible teacher of mine, a guy I really respected, uh, Chuck Missler, always used to say one of the fundamental errors that Christians make is to confuse this world with a picnic ground instead of seeing it the way it is as a battleground. I mean, could you imagine going ashore at Normandy, uh, having one of the uh, landing craft open its doors and be shocked to find there were Germans shooting at you, standing there with your uh, sand pail and, uh, you know, your uh, inflatable rubber ducky, and you're going to have a good time at the beach. Oh, I thought we were going to the beach. Yeah, you're going to the beach, but you're going there to fight a war, not to take a vacation. So... Um, I understand. I have great sympathy for people who sit under this teaching knob. And, uh, you know, early on in my Christian life, I was uh, an adherent of that kind of faith movement teaching. I was discipled into it by uh, one of the coaches who led me to the Lord. But uh, the Lord quickly showed me that uh, as the more I got to know the Bible, the more what I was being told by those in the faith movement, and that's really what this comes from, the word faith movement, and what the Bible actually said were two different things. Uh, and, and so uh, we've got to be very careful uh, who we sit under. Uh, the best piece of advice I think we can give you is to be like the Berean believers that we see in the book of Acts, chapter 17 and verse 11, where they received the word with eagerness. Be in God's word, understand the promises of God's word, stand on the promises of God's word. But they also searched the scriptures daily to see if even the things the Apostle Paul was telling them were really so. So if they were commended 
in the scriptures being more noble-minded than other people that Paul and his entourage had run into for doing just that, we ought to do that too. You ought to do that on this program as well. Don't believe something just because we say it. Check it out according to the Bible. And if you do, uh, boy, that's the best compliment you could ever give us to this ministry. If this become makes you become a person that does your own homework, that owns your own convictions before God, that falls more and more in love with God's Word every day, then we've done our job. But then building on that point, and this is equally important, when we're using prayer as a means of getting what we want, which, again, all of us at one time in our life thought that God was just a glorified Santa Claus. You write your list and you get what you want from God. The problem is when we look at the example God himself showed us, that a perfect man would pray. We go to Luke chapter 22 and verse 42, where Jesus literally staring down the barrel of something he did not want to experience. The wrath of God poured out on a righteous man. He said, not, uh, you know, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, and this is the key, not my will, but yours be done. Now, that is our model and framework. In Jesus, we have our example. And if you don't follow Jesus and call yourself a Christian, you aren't a Christian. Note that point as severely as possible. Right. When Jesus made the example of prayer, not seeking what he wanted, but aligning what he wanted with the Father, that's our model. That's our example. If God's will is to bring the nation of the United States under his influence once again, all the more for it, but we simply aren't given that promise. So praying for that would not be aligning our will with God's. Right. If God blesses you, I'm all in favor of that. But praying or demanding, as you were talking about earlier, Dad, the idea that we're supposed to have a carefree life is not something God promised. It would not be aligning us with the purpose God has us on this earth. And this is how people end up in atheism. They come up with all these demands of God. He doesn't deliver on what they decided in advance he should do. And where does it put them? It puts them in a position of disappointment. The fake God that they made up didn't do what they decided he should do, and therefore they abandoned him. Now, that's great. I'm glad you stopped believing in a fake God, because that God doesn't exist. Right. But the God of Israel, who revealed himself in history, didn't play by those rules. All you debunked was this image of God that gives you everything you want. When he doesn't give you everything you want, then you say so much for God. But here's the problem. That God isn't the God of the Bible. So if we use Jesus as our metric, if we use him as our model, understand this, and I'm repeating the point because it is just that important. The purpose of prayer is not aligning God's will with mine. It's aligning our will with God's. To say, God, this is what I want in this situation. There's nothing wrong with making petitions. Uh, with prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And then what does it say? And the blessings of God will abound in you in Christ Jesus? No, the peace of God right. will abound to you in Christ Jesus. You will be given the opportunity to share his perspective on those things if that's what you're praying for. Because, again, let's just do this as an illustration. If you come to somebody, say an omniscient being, an all-knowing being, and you ask them, could you give me the kind of perspective that wants what you want in this situation? I don't think you're going to find that being crossing its arms or whatever a non 
Euclidean entity would do and say, <laughs> okay. Not Euclidean, uh, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not, go look that up by the way. It's, mm. uh, it's a very uh, $4 word. Cross his arms and say, no, I'm just gonna let you dangle. I don't want you to know what I'm doing in this situation. I just wanna see you squirm. Well, that might make sense for me. I enjoy seeing people uncomfortable, but it's not true of God. So if we're talking about the God of Israel, the God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the God who indwells those who trust in his death and resurrection, then we're talking about a God who knows what's best for us. And that's in the long term, not a short term emotional sense. So note those things. And when you hear these prosperity gospel cults putting forward the idea that God is Santa Claus and nothing more, again, uh, find some other church to watch online yesterday and tomorrow. That would be our advice. Yeah. So with that said, going out to the places where we don't usually get our questions from, uh, this one is on our private message board from a YouTube ministry adjacent to the program who want to know our views on biblical literalism. For example, Abraham lived to be 175 before he died. Now, is this symbolic? Is this literal? Is this allegorical? Is that a, just a factually scientific uh, statement that the Bible got wrong? Well, let's take this point by point. With the specific example of Abraham living to be 175, the argument is, well, people today only live to be such and such an age if they're lucky, and it doesn't even approach that. And since Abraham managed to maintain some virility past his 100s, he fathered many children after Isaac and Ishmael, that is obviously at odds with what we observe human biology to be like today. Now, that is then taken to be contrary to science, or rather the words of scientists, and say that the Bible is in scientific error. Now, earlier this week, there was an interesting article that was shared, uh, actually it failed to be shared, and there's a good reason for that, on CTV News that was then promoted by other organizations that made it accessible to us where a Russian geneticist by the name of Alexander, and I'm not Russian, so forgive me in my pronunciation, K-U-D-R-Y-A-V-T-S-E-V, Kudrysev, I don't know. Close enough. <laughs> I spelled it. Yeah. Came up with the conclusion that if you work backwards with the rate of mutation we're dealing with today, that people who didn't have all of the issues involved with our environment, with inbreeding, and of course the mutations that result therein, human beings would have the genome and the capacity to live around 900 years old if we're going back a couple thousand years. Now, to those who would take a literal view of Genesis chapter 4, where it notes that Adam lived to be around 960, and then he died, and then Keturah, and Seth, and all these other Methuselah, people. Methuselah, 969 years. Yeah, he, uh, The all-time record. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's definitely got uh, some, some wisdom under his belt, probably a beard too, but yeah. the joking aside, people look at that and go, well, that's impossible because it's different than how things work today. Well, first of all, a lot of things work differently <laughs> at different times in history than they do today. When you look at people, say, for instance, living under the conditions of the uh, medieval Europe time period, and you see them dropping like flies, do you say that, oh, well, back then people just had weaker immune systems? No, they didn't have access to medicine. There is a difference. And on and on it goes. 
But when we're talking about the research, and, and this is the point that I'm making in all this, we're looking at the research of people who promote material or come to conclusions on the same authority. They're scientists, right? They come to conclusions that say people only live to be this amount of age. Well, here's another scientist that says we could potentially live to these other ages given different environments, time periods, and reduced amounts of mutation. Well, then they censor that. Now, who's being objective in those kind of conclusions? The scientists or the religion of scientism, where the majority view of the new priests, the men in white lab coats that say we are infallible, trust the science, and on it goes. Obviously, we're not going to come to an objective conclusion with people who are in advance assuming their own infallibility until, of course, more information comes along and they either, like we see it today, censor it because it goes against what they want to be true, which isn't objective, or they come up with more information that expands upon what they already believed, but they just pretend that they were right all along, even though they were coming to the opposite conclusion they now say they always promoted. Either way, it's silly. We don't trust scientists to give us the infallible truths about everything ever. I don't doubt that they have a lot of field in education and that they can definitely wax eloquent on issues that I wouldn't be able to spell, see my attempts at Russian. No. But the point being made is this. When we say, well, the Bible can't be literal because that goes against modern sensibilities, you go 100 years ago, leeches were the best form of medicine. You go 200 years ago and people were being socially persecuted because they didn't bow their knees before the sweet feet of the Pope. On and on it goes. Here's the point, or 300 years. The, here's the point. When we're talking about this issue and you say the Bible can't be literal because people who assume the Bible is false are also making assumptions that these claims are false isn't objective with the text. So what is an objective handling of the text? How should we take the difference, say for example, between someone who says, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that's impossible. Why? Because miracles don't happen. Or someone that would say, go to the book of Isaiah and say, see it says the circle of the earth, this proves the earth is flat, even though that was in the context of a poem. Kind of gave it away here. but. How should we objectively handle the Bible and avoid these kinds of inconsistencies? Well, well once again, we have to understand, uh, whenever someone says to me, do you take the Bible literally? My first response to that is, well, it's a piece of literature. How else do you want me to take it? That usually stuns people a bit, that they say, well, you know, I mean, uh, you, you, you don't believe like the miracles and, and all this. So, you know, when they say, do you take the Bible literally? Uh, just like you mentioned, Sean, really what it comes down to is having an anti-supernatural bias. But the Bible purports to talk about the most supernatural thing we could ever imagine, the fact that the God who created all things wants to have a relationship with us, and uh, that we are a visited planet, that God became a man and walked among us in the person of Jesus Christ, presented himself uh, with a uh, sinless life, taught like no one has taught before or since, took that perfect life, laid it down on a cruel Roman cross, which can be verified uh, in the annals of history. Even the most uh, ardent anti-supernaturalist scholars will all concede that uh, one of the best attested facts of history is that Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he rose from the dead, another fact of history that can be attested to. So uh, the, the question that I would have, first of all, for someone who says, I can't take the Bible literally because it records miracles, 
I asked them, well, do you believe that it's possible that God created the heavens and the earth? And if they're willing to concede that, I'd say, well, if he's able to do that, then it seems like turning water into wine is uh, small potatoes in comparison, don't you think? So uh, we have to make sure that we get rid of our biases. And, and this is the most important thing I would tell you as far as the, uh, the, the old uh, rub about not taking the Bible literally. Uh, when we come to the Bible, our goal should be not to read into the Bible our own presuppositions and biases and cultural givens. Uh, our purpose should be to read out of the Bible what its original authors and its ultimate author, God himself, wanted to communicate to us. That is the goal of biblical interpretation. And so when, uh, you know, when I say this, and I say, you know, you can't understand the message of the Bible. Oh, everybody's got a different interpretation. Well, yeah, that may be true, but God had a decided meaning behind the text. There is one true and correct meaning in the text, and that should be our goal. That should be our desire, not to read into the text, but to read out of the text. So how do you do that? Well, say, uh, for instance, uh, you are perusing the New Testament, and you find yourself in the book of Acts. You have to ask yourself, what type of literature am I dealing with here? Well, the book of Acts is written as a historical narrative. And as such, I am to take it as a historical narrative, not as an allegory, not as a parable, but as a historical narrative. The people, places, customs, modes of transportation, uh, politicians, and so on that we see mentioned in the book of Acts all tell us that this is a historical narrative. So if I want to understand the message of the book of Acts, that's got to be the way I look at it. That was the author's intended meaning from the beginning. Uh, Dr. Luke said that he wrote an orderly account for a nobleman by the name of Theophilus that he might know the exact truth of the things that he believed. So when I look at the book of Acts, I look at it in that way. I don't try to say, well, you know, I, I just think that this is, uh, you know, a great spiritual allegory because there's miracles here. Well, the, the miracles being shared are just that. They're miraculous. But if God is at work, then uh, miracles should not be surprising, but maybe even expected. So that would be an example of the book of Acts. Say I'm reading through the Psalms. Well, in the Psalms, you're going to find poetry. Some of it is based upon historical uh, situations, but it's always expressed in the, the realm of Hebrew poetry. And so when I, say, get a book of regular poetry, uh, I'm going to take a look at it in that that sense. Say you got a, uh, a book of funny limericks uh, as a present for your birthday. Well, you're not going to look at this as a cookbook, are you? You're not going to look at it as a way to discover how to change the oil in your car. You're going to say, oh, well, the purpose of this was to uh, write something to be amusing, hence the, uh, the form of the limerick. Uh, and, and so, you know, if to, to read a book of limericks and say, well, you know, they all seem to have the same pattern. It's a little repetitious, isn't it? Yeah, because it's a book of limericks. So I take that book literally when I see it as poetry. In the same way, when I look at the Psalms, I, I look at it and I see it's being poetic. And so in the Psalms, we see poetic language, for instance. When we see the Psalms speaking uh, uh, in Psalm 19, where it says their voice has gone out to the ends of the earth, their utterances to the ends of the world. Uh, does that mean that the world has ends in it? 
Uh, no, what that means is it's an expression. And we take a look at the, uh, the terms of the four corners of the earth, the ends of the world. Uh, inevitably, it is tied into not geography, but really actually anthropology. The phrase is always used with the fact that you're going to run into people from the farthest distance all over the globe. That's all it means. When the Bible speaks of sunrise, right, some people will say, well, this is anti-scientific because it talks about the sun rising. Well, will we use that same standard if, say, for instance, we were watching the evening news and the weatherman said, sunrise tomorrow will be at uh, 6.20 a.m.? Well, uh, we, we can't possibly accept that. Uh, because we know the sun doesn't rise, the earth rotates. The guy should be saying that the rotation of the earth will coincide with the position of the sun so that the sun will come above or the horizon of the earth in a way that we can uh, perceive it at 6.20 a.m. Or you could just say sunrise, and everybody would know what you meant. So same thing going on uh, with the Bible. Uh, you know, the, the other thing that we have to understand is this, though, that although... We can examine the Bible, ask those same questions they taught us in J school, journalism school, about how to report on a story. Asked who, what, where, when, why, and how. Whenever you're looking at a particular passage, you're going to get to the gist of it. Uh, but, you know, the other thing that I would say is this. There's another aspect of the Bible that you cannot minimize. Uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, we are told that the Bible's truth is spiritually discerned. The natural man doesn't receive the things of God, nor can he, but they are spiritually discerned. In other words, if God doesn't open your eyes to be able to understand the Bible, you're going to have an awful hard time uh, getting through it, uh, understanding what the message is, because in essence, it has a supernatural quality built into it. If I take a book that was written from a supernatural source and I immediately dismiss the supernatural nature of that source, I'm going to miss a lot, if not just about everything. So uh, when people say, do you take the Bible literally? Uh, yeah, you have to. And, and this is what happens when you don't. When you don't take the Bible literally, you know what you've done? You've elevated yourself above the Bible. Because when we uh, say, well, I think this part is literal, this part is not. Uh, this part and when I say literal and not, what I mean is this part is to be taken seriously, this part is not because it offends my worldview in some way, well then I'm the one who's picking and choosing. I've become a cafeteria Christian, if you will. I'll take a little from here and a little from there, but this part over here about not loving to stimulate my nerve endings, I don't really like that very much, so I'm going to ignore it. Uh, so uh, the, the fact of the matter is oftentimes uh, we have to look at our own hearts as we approach the Bible as well. But uh, the wonderful thing is, uh, a moment's prayer, uh, open my eyes, O Lord, that I might see wonderful things in your word, can open up this amazing treasure that is God's word. All right. And speaking of sticking to that authority, a uh, question from Yari, could it be a Christian that will wound the Antichrist? Uh, we aren't told. So to make sure that you're not disappointed, the avocado has the highest fiber and calories of any fruit. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and you know, when we see that passage in Revelation chapter 13 about uh, the Antichrist receiving a mortal head wound, it doesn't say who did it. The person who was involved in the instrument, instrumentation of that is not ever mentioned. So the, the, important, we should say. the important principle is this. When the Bible speaks, we should speak with all confidence. When the Bible is silent 
on a particular issue, uh, we should hold our breath. So sometimes you'll hear people speculating about these sort of things, uh, but it's just that it's speculation. It's not on the same level with revelation, Yari. Uh, good to think through those things and, and ponder, but uh, don't let the ponderings get in the way of what we should be doing with the Bible, not uh, thinking about the things it doesn't say, but paying attention to the things that it does. And on another note, dental floss has superb tensile strength. <laughs> A question from Maggie. Are people who don't experience supernatural events farther from God? She always uh, seems to run into people who had a vision, who had a dream, who had an angel encounter or some sort of divine revelation. And she, I guess, uh, is wondering why she seems to be left out in this sort of mix, if that's a mark against her spiritual maturity or, if anything else, a compliment. Well, uh, I think a couple things uh, come to mind when we talk about uh, people that uh, experience uh, the, the miraculous. Uh, Sean, when we look at the book of Acts, uh, we are dealing with a, a time period, what, roughly of about 30 to 40 years being recorded in yeah. the book of Acts? Yeah, if we judge the crucifixion to be around 30, 33 AD. It ends up short of AD 67, where Paul was Beheaded. About to, yeah. Well, not yeah. not yet. He's yeah. about to be. Yeah. But uh, his first trial at Nero was in the early '60s. He was brought up again on charges. So about 30 years. So around roughly around 30 years. How many major miracles do we find recorded in the Book of Acts? Last count, 16. I think maybe 17. Okay. So you're talking about 16 or 17 major miracles in a 30-year span. So on, on average, about one every other year. Yeah. So uh, sometimes when we don't realize the span of time that's involved, say, in the book of Acts, we find ourselves in a place uh, where we're kind of like, wow, you know, I wish I could have an experience like in the book of Acts. Well, the one thing you discover about these miracles in the book of Acts is that when they were done, it wasn't just to wow a crowd. It wasn't uh, to warm the cockles of the disciples' hearts. Uh, it was done because it was an absolute necessity. God had to supernaturally intervene in those situations. And God can and still does supernaturally intervene in the lives of his people. But to say that someone is more spiritual or less spiritual because of the presence or the absence of these supernatural interventions, I think is uh, a little bit dangerous in, in two respects. Number one, um, we see a guy like Daniel, right, who experienced some really amazing supernatural interventions of God in his life and times in his career as a public servant. But we also see a guy by the name of Nehemiah who experienced no miracles recorded in the book that bears his name as a faithful public servant who was able to be used by God to bless his people. So who is more godly, Nehemiah or Daniel? Yes. Uh, you know, when, when people talk about uh, Nehemiah, they go, wow, you know, it seems like the guy never blew it. He, he was really right on and passionate in his relationship with God from the beginning to the end. Daniel seems like the guy never blew it. Seems like he was passionate. But uh, both of them are fallen, sinful human beings, just like we are. It, you know, none of these accounts records everything about them. But the, the bottom line is you've got two really, really 
wonderfully used of God individuals. One experienced the miraculous uh, on a pretty spectacular level in Daniel. The other did not experience anything except the providential hand of God working behind the scenes, giving him favor with Middle Eastern potentates, uh, giving him wisdom to be able to protect the people of God from their overwhelming enemies and so on. Witnessing fulfilled prophecy, but not delivering it. Right. So, uh, you know, to say that somebody is more spiritual because the miraculous is at work in their life uh, doesn't really pass that test. The other thing I would say, and this is uh, something I can tell you from firsthand experience, is this. Uh, I've experienced uh, the miraculous intervention of God. Uh, you know, one really amazing miraculous intervention from God happened uh, when I was dating my wife-to-be, Pam. I was really in a bad place as far as uh, uh, my emotions were concerned, my relationships were concerned, and I didn't really think I could ever trust anybody enough to ever get married again. And I remember going in and uh, talking to Pastor Chuck Smith and his wife, Kay, about Pam. We'd been dating for about a year, and I said, you know, I've been seeing this girl, and she's really wonderful, but I just really not sure uh, whether to commit or not. And uh, Chuck and Kay prayed for me, and, you know, Kay knew Pam really well from uh, her growing up with her daughter Cheryl and all of this. And, oh, Pam's wonderful and all of this. And they prayed, and Chuck was like, oh, it's good for a man in the ministry to be married, you know. And, and so, um, you know, they prayed for me, and I said thanks, and I walked out. My good friend Odin Fong, uh, who was on staff there, came up and introduced me to his wife. And his wife said, oh, you're Scott Richards. And I said, yeah, yeah, nice to meet you. He goes, well, I've been praying for you. I went, well, that's nice. I can use a lot of prayer. And she said, I really feel like God is sharing something with me I need to share with you. I go, oh, boy, here we go. Uh, you know, I've run up to all these people and said, God has told me I've got this perfect girl for you. But, it, you know, it's Odin's wife, so I'll cut her some slack. Well, long story short, she sat down and she said, oh, man, you've really been through it. Uh, and God wants you to know that if you decide to get married again, it's going to be what he had for you all the way along. And I thought, oh, is that an interesting coincidence talking to Chuck and Kay, and this woman comes up and says that. And she goes, wow, you really have been through it. Well, long story short, she began to describe for me uh, in uh, incredible detail everything that had happened in my life over the last 10, 12 years that had led me to a point where I didn't think I could get married to Pam. No cold or hot reading. No. She didn't know me from a hole in the ground. Uh, and know your butt. She uh, shared, uh, for instance, uh, conversations with a counselor that I had that I'd shared with nobody, word for word. And uh, I just walked out of there w w thinking Rod Serling was going to come walking out from behind a curtain. I thought I was in the twilight zone. But the message was, if you decide to get married, it's going to be what God wanted for you all the way along. And and, uh, you know, I was just so blown away by all of that. It was one of the most uh, amazing examples, the gift of prophecy, word of knowledge, whatever you want to call it, that I've ever experienced. But, you know, as I look back on that now, she wasn't telling me anything that I couldn't have figured out just by applying the standards of God's word. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I could take a look at Pam and her character and ask myself the question, is this the kind of woman who is walking with the Lord, who has a 100% commitment to Christ, who has a 100% a desire to grow in her walk with Christ, who has a 100% desire to follow the Lord in ministry. Yes, yes, and yes. I could have figured that out all by myself. But because I was so bound by fear and so stubborn and hard-headed, God had to miraculously intervene and provide me with that kind of insight. 
Now, uh, when people talk about the miraculous and all that, I love when the miraculous happens, and I've seen miraculous healings, and I've seen miraculous words of prophecy, and, and a number of different things, miraculous manifestations of the grace of God, even on the deathbed of loved ones. But uh, the thing that I, I've discovered is this. Uh, for the most part, God moves in mysterious ways. He moves behind the scenes. He is so powerful, so sovereign. He is... Uh, works in ways that are supernaturally natural. You don't even see it happening until you get there. Uh, and if you need a miracle to keep you on track, God will give you a miracle. But if you don't have a miracle, guess what? You don't need it. Uh, I'm not saying turn your back on the ideas of miracles because God can and does intervene in human events. He answers prayer. He leads us into all truth in his word. He can give us wisdom and insight uh, that we wouldn't have any other way. Uh, but the, the bottom line is he will only do that if, uh, in a sense, we've uh, kind of ignored the basics that he has given to us. So don't feel like you're some kind of second-class spiritual citizen because, you know, an angel doesn't show up in the parking lot and say, hey, you better get the locale instead of the regular when you go in there to Walmart and get your dinner tonight. Um, God, when I hear people talking like that, uh, it, uh, it makes me very skeptical. When people talk about having dreams all the time or visions all the time uh, about the most pedestrian and seemingly inconsequential things, uh, maybe we're going to get to heaven and God's going to say, oh, well, of course I did that for them. They were just different, differently gifted spiritually. Possible, but uh, I really believe that miracles are just that. If you, when you say, what's well, a miracle? What are you saying? Not something I expected to happen. So God can do that. God does do that. But I think God has also given us tremendous resources that we can already use and grow in uh, through the power of his spirit that aren't necessarily miraculous as we would define them. All right. So let us know if that helps you out. Um, oh, boy. Here's a question from Talon, and this will also tie into another question from Maggie. Uh, first of all, uh, is the world going to get super religious after the rapture? We're not told about the individual states or the nuances of how the world religions are going to sort themselves out immediately after the rapture, but we do know where they're ultimately going to end up. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse, let's start in verse 7. It says, It was granted to him, that is the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So already, what are we being told? That this antichrist figure this beast from the sea who's described the same way that all four of the kingdoms of daniel chapter four or it was a Daniel chapter six was it uh were described in reference to the nations that would be a source of influence and persecution towards the jewish people he is going to make war with the saints now what's a saint well it's not someone that the roman catholic church has a uh renewed premium subscribership to. It's someone who is in a right relationship with God. So describing someone who religiously is affiliated with God, he's going to make war with them and, note this, to overcome them. And authority was given him to him excuse me, over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now here's the answer to your question, Talon. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So at this point, 
what we would note as the abomination of desolation. The world is going to be divided into two religious camps. There's going to be those who are worshiping a spiritual decision, the beast, right, and those who worship the lamb, nothing in between. As far as what's going to happen between A and B, those first three and a half years, will Islam still exist? I hope not. At the, at, if the trajectory continues as it is, yeah. then we're going to see a lot more apostasy than we give it credit for. And I hope that the majority of Muslims today end up going with us in the rapture. We're not promised anything. Well, Hinduism or you know Taoism or all these others, we aren't told but we are told that the ultimate end result is that whatever false religions have come and gone over the years and are still holding sway over people's hearts today, when the mind behind those things makes his final play, it's going to be all or nothing. The same demonic influence that is leading people away from God will lead them to him. There won't be a middle ground. So will the world get super religious? Yeah, everyone will be religious, but for better or worse. Yeah, and uh, you know the other uh, wild card factor there is in Revelation 17, uh, we're told in the first part of the tribulation period, the beast himself is going to be under uh, the sway or the authority of a worldwide religious system called Mystery Babylon. Uh, we're told it's going to be incredibly popular. Uh, for instance, in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, it says, The waters which you saw where the harlot, referring to Mystery Babylon, is, sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Uh, so this false religious system, this Mystery Babylon uh, system, which many believe is just going to be a conglomeration of all of the Christ-rejecting relation, uh, religions uh, that you have on the earth right now, uh, kind of uh, thrown into wearing blender and put on puree, uh, that's going to be what dominates. The Antichrist is finally going to have enough of it, cast it aside and said, forget it, you're just going to all worship me. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be an intensely religious situation. All right, and then uh, the second one, and this was what inspired the oh boy, uh, was um, <laughs> folks say that the rapture was popularized in the 1970s by Hal Lindsey's writings, The Late Great Planet Earth. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the... Uh, popularized in the sense that a lot of people who didn't know about the rapture found out about it by reading that. Late Great Planet Earth was the number one best-selling book of the 1970s. New York Times bestseller, number one. Yep, but yeah. um, people would also use this today, especially among certain camps that would reject the idea of a rapture, and they'd say that it was uh, not true, it was just popular, which again, the fact that a lot of people believe something or receive something doesn't make it true. Or were made aware of something. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that doesn't uh, make it true or not. But they would use that as a foundation and platform to say, well, the whole idea of a rapture was a very new and recent innovation to Christianity and the study of the end times and fancy. It's called eschatology. Uh, but they'd even go so far as to say, and people I've learned from, people whose opinion I have lost respect for as a result of this, because they should know better, right. uh, said that this was all invented by a man in the 19th century named John Darby. Uh, he apparently uh, had a little girl in his congregation who had a vision, and then that's uh, what he ultimately ended up preaching from. On and on it goes. The fact of the matter is there are 
different views on Christian end times, and all of them are not non-negotiables as far as what it means to be a Christian. There are people who are amillennialists, who don't think that there's a literal fulfillment of prophecies that we should expect in the future, that there is no actual millennium, that it's just a symbolic reference to Christ, is usually associated with a group that, again, in fancy terms, but we want to be technical and accurate for your edification, would be among the idealists or the preterists. Now, not all preterists are amillennialists, but let's just note that point. Uh, preterists are also yeah. found in the camp of postmillennialists, that they do believe there were future prophecies fulfilled as far as the time of Jesus. For instance, the destruction of the temple was spoken in the future right. in reference to Jesus, but they'd say that the overwhelming majority today, if not all, have been fulfilled. That's what preterist means. It means fulfilled. Yeah. They would uh, basically just say that we shouldn't expect anything in the future. God's plans are kind of a blank slate as far as the church. Uh, more power to them, I disagree respectfully, but it wouldn't mean that their salvation's illegitimate. Might question their handling of Scripture, but only on a non-negotiable or on a negotiable issue. Right. The third and most prominent one that we would encourage people to look more into and find reasons to believe or disbelieve, we're not afraid of controversy in this matter, is that of premillennialists, that we are expecting prophecies to be fulfilled, including but not limited to a literal tribulation, a literal antichrist, and a literal millennium, thousand-year reign of Christ. So all of these things being centered around them, if the church had just come up with this in the last 200 years, would that make it false? No, truth is truth regardless of how many people are paying sure. attention to it. Yeah. But even that statement is false because we have sources like Ephraim the Syrian, and his source Proto-Ephraim dates his second century writings to the fourth century, neither of which are in the 19th century. There's a book I'd recommend called Dispensationalism Before Darby that goes through document after document of people throughout the ages who have held a wide variety of views in the end times, influenced for better or for worse on their circumstances or their study of the Bible. Make sure that yours is as well. Now, thank you all for listening. We look forward to answering more of your questions tomorrow. Till then, God bless you. We'll see you all next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.